you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts, that, Lord, we would truly put aside um, criticalness, discerning hearts, yes, but criticalness, Lord, that we put aside and that we would just sit and learn and that, Lord, in the midst of this, we would be on awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that he would be exalted in this moment and that our hearts would be transformed by it. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. When we were last in Matthew, we had just completed the excursus that's found in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Now, remember, an excursus is a digression from the story to supply important information to the reader, but it's not necessary for the immediate moment of the plot. There were four facts that we had learned from this passage. We learned that what Herod Antipas, the governing authority over Galilee, where Jesus was conducting his ministry, we learned what Herod thought of our Lord's miraculous deeds. Second, we saw why John the Baptist was imprisoned and his subsequent death. Third, we could infer from Herod's comments and the disciples of the Baptist that the ministries of Jesus and John were very closely related to one another. And last, we see the Lord's motivation and movements for the next scene as he conducts one of the most glorious miracles, the feeding of more than 5,000 people. Now, before we plunge here into the details of the text, we need to say a few things about the miracle overall. This is the first of two occasions where Jesus will supernaturally feed a massive amount of people. The second is at the end of chapter 15, and that one is to a smaller crowd than the one that's before us today. But this particular episode is found in all four of the Gospels. Each Gospel account provides us with differing details that not only corroborate the event, but allows us better insight as to what transpired. For example, Luke tells us that this occurred near Bethsaida. Both Mark and Luke reveal that this massive group sat down in groups of 50s and 100s. Mark and John tells us there is a conversation about what it costs to feed such a large crowd of people. John says that that conversation was with the disciple Philip. He also mentions that it was a boy that offered his meal of five loaves and two fish. John is the only author that relays the reaction of the crowd, that afterwards they called Jesus the prophet, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, and that they wanted to make him king. So each gospel story gives us a piece of the puzzle. And yet there is enough consistency between the accounts that validate the story overall. Jesus is in a desolate place. There are at least 5,000 men present, and if the people sat down in groups of 50 and 100, it would be easy to count them in. There are women and children that are present as well, but they're not included in the count. And all four say this happened near the evening time next to the Sea of Galilee. All mention five loaves and two fish, and all mention that there are 12 baskets left over. So to continue my metaphor, while we have differing details or different pieces of the puzzle, we at least know we're all working the same puzzle here. This event has massive implications as to the validity of the Gospels. Shortly after I was saved, I was given a book written by a liberal professor who used to teach at Southeastern Seminary. No offense, Alex. 
But he used to teach at Southeastern. And in his portrayal of this event, he stated that he believed that Jesus didn't actually produce the food for that many people. That there was no miracle. But that when the disciples sat the people down in their various groups, it would produce sort of a chain reaction developed from the times of the Old Testament exodus when people would know it was time to pull out their own lunches and share with one another. Thus, Jesus didn't really produce a miracle, but demonstrated a massive bit of organization here. Now, as a new Christian, I thought, well, that's a clever explanation. But, but the more I thought about it, I began to realize that was ridiculous. Why would all four Gospels record this event as a miracle if it was just good project management? Why did the people start calling him the prophet and wanted to make him king if no miracle occurred? And consider the fact that all four Gospels draw attention to the fact of 5,000 men being present. Talk about a massive pool of witnesses. Over 5,000 people saw Jesus do this. And yet, not a single soul in recorded history came out and said, well, the disciples, Matthew and John, and their friends, Mark and Luke, they just wrote a bunch of lies here. That never occurred. Instead, with such a huge miracle, it seems to be a given that it actually occurred. Even Herod Antipas testified to Jesus' miraculous powers in verse 2. Either this miracle really happened in space-time history or all of the Gospels are false. Now, while some of the other Gospels provide us with more details, we're going to stick here with Matthew's account. I may make reference to the others, but the Holy Spirit has inspired the author Matthew to record this in his particular manner within the text. So let's follow the flow of the story as he presents it. Now let's begin by looking at the circumstances in which this occurs, because it's important to the plot. Jesus has an intention to withdraw from the crowds, to, to get away with just his disciples to a secluded place. Now, as we're coming off the excursus in verses 1 through 12, there's a little uncertainty here as to the motivation as why he's doing this. Verse 13 reveals that Jesus has heard something that causes him to seek solitude. What is that news? If we read Matthew 14, verses 10 through 12 alone, it would be the news of John the Baptist's death. Starting in verse 10, he, meaning Herod, sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now remember, this is an excursus. Matthew is telling us of John's death as it occurred in the past. And the primary reason that he brings this up is that Herod is connecting Jesus' ministry with John. Remember, verses 1 and 2, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So which news is Jesus hearing that causes him to withdraw? Now, my first inclination was to say Herod's pronouncement. Both Mark and Luke also present this excursus in a similar manner before the feeding of the 5,000. And some might think that our Lord is moving away from the crowds to avoid the governing authorities since he was gaining their attention. But once again, the excursus was to give us Herod's opinion of Jesus. I don't think any of our authors was trying to be chronological, but inform the readers of the facts. Instead, we might be going back to the time when Jesus first heard of John's death and he was grieving. I don't think Jesus, the king of the universe, was withdrawing to the wilderness because he was afraid of Herod. 
In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, some Pharisees come and they tell Jesus that Herod is plotting to kill him. And Jesus says, well, go and tell that fox precisely what I'm doing and let him know I am completing my course. So I don't think Jesus was returning to the countryside out of fear. It, it may well be that he does so for his own reasons and that he doesn't want to draw more attention to himself at this point. However, it, it seems odd that he performs his largest miracle where immediately afterwards the people want to make him king if he didn't want to attract attention. So after careful thought and study, my opinion is, is that we're going back to the time when Jesus first learns of John's death. Jesus is fatigued and he is grieved. He needs some time alone and explains why he wants solitude. And Jesus did this often. He taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, that there should be a time of secret prayer for a pious soul. Later on in chapter 26, we will read of Jesus withdrawing to pray alone in the garden before his crucifixion. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and also in Luke 11, verse 1, we read of Jesus going to the mountains to pray all night to God. He tried to do it again in, in Luke chapter 5, but like this occasion, the crowds prevented it. There are times when you need to be alone and commune with God. But to my fellow introverts, don't read into this that God always wants us to withdraw from people. If that was the case, we would never share the gospel. But it's a good practice to take a, a moment daily to withdraw from the world and commune with the Lord if you are able. So Jesus was inclined to have a private moment away from the crowds, but that was not to be the case. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them, withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and they had, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now Jesus even gets into a boat to get away from them, but the people follow on foot around the shoreline just to be with him. Now remember, this isn't just a small group doing this, but thousands. And Jesus gets out, and he sees all of them, and does he say, you people, get away from me. I'm having a bad day. I am grieving. I need my space right now. No. Once again, we see his heart. We are told he had compassion on them. Even in his fatigue and grief, Jesus' heart was to move towards those who were suffering. He wants to heal the afflicted. And once he did one miracle, I'm sure the people ran home to get more infirm people, and the crowd would just grow in size. And yet he stayed there to teach and to heal. Isn't it nice to know that it's Jesus' heart to move towards suffering, that you are never ever an inconvenience to the Lord Jesus. But this impromptu gathering sets up a dilemma. We see it in verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away go, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So there are three problems here. One, it's the end of the day, almost getting dark. Two, Remember, Jesus withdrew to a desolate place, so there are no orchards or, or vineyards or crops that they could draw upon. They would need food soon. And three, there is a massive crowd at this point. If ever 
there was a point for Jesus to stop what he was doing and send everyone home. Now was that time. And in the next verse, Jesus proposes a solution. They need not go away. You, meaning the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now, they're obviously blown away by this suggestion. From John's account of this event, we learn that Philip tells Jesus that not even 200 denarii worth of bread would feed this crowd even just a little morsel to eat. A denarii was a day's wage, so not even two-thirds of a year's income could feed this crowd. That's how big it is. To the disciples, what Jesus is suggesting here is outrageous. And again, from John, we learn that the next line is spoken by Andrew. We only have five loaves and two fish. And it may well be that Andrew had a sarcastic sense of humor like me, and he's proposing this as a joke. Like, we can maybe get two or three meals out of this much, Jesus. But Jesus' suggestion seems preposterous to the disciples. Now, before I go any further, let me address two things that I think preachers get a little distracted with when they preach through this story. It may well be that they're just looking for things to talk about rather than the main thing. I hear a lot being made of the descriptions of the loaves and the fish, that, that barley loaves would have been more like the large dinner rolls, and the Greek word for fish emphasizes the smallness of the fish. Yes, this was probably the proportion of a lunch or a dinner for a boy. But even if he had handed over five foot-long subs and two giant mackerels to feed 5,000-plus people with 12 baskets left over, the miracle would still be no less impressive to me. And then it seems, like most of the time that I hear this preached, there's always an emphasis on the boy who provided the loaves and the fish. Like, he gave a small offering to Jesus, and because of it, over 5,000 people were able to eat that day. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm appreciative of this kid's gift. But the emphasis is not on the boy. He's only mentioned in one of the four Gospels, and it's a minor detail. The focus is on King Jesus here. He is very God himself, and I don't think he would have had a problem producing what he needed that day, even without the little boy's gift. But all of that aside, each of the Gospels say that Jesus told his disciples, you give them something to eat. Like numerous other occasions throughout the Gospel accounts, the disciples' vision was extremely limited by their lack of faith. They were looking to human means not towards God. And if you read each of the other Gospels, the disciples all thought to feed everyone that they would have to go out and buy bread in order to do so. Not a single one of them looked at Jesus and said, how do we do this, Jesus? Lord, teach us. Show us the way. If we rely upon you, we know you will provide. But they don't do that. And as usual, Jesus does show them, even though they do not ask. His heart is patience even with his disciples. With man, such a problem is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we read what happens next in verse 18. And he said, bring them, meaning the loaves and the fish, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, we really need to consider the miracle here. Now, let me just draw attention to five different things here that we learn. 
First, notice Jesus' posture here. He doesn't take credit for the miracle alone. But he begins first with a blessing and looking towards heaven. Jesus always gives the Father glory and draws attention to whose authority he's working under. He is divine, fully God. Make no mistake about that. But he always demonstrates a perfect faith in the Father. Second, he breaks the loaves and the fish into pieces. Most likely, considering the lateness of the day, this would have been smoked fish, which would allow for Jesus to break it up easily. And this is a miracle not of producing from ex nihilo, out of nothing, producing from out of nothing like creation, but one of multiplication. So think about this. As he continued to keep breaking up the food, he was producing baked bread and smoked fish, food that had already been prepared. I wish I could have seen the process. Like, like how did he know when he reached the end of one loaf to pick up the next in that moment? The Gospels don't tell us. It's, it's a wonder nonetheless. Third, notice that Jesus had a role for the disciples. He could have had each group of 50 line up and he gives portions to each one. But remember, Jesus' order was, you give them something to eat. You serve them. They had a part to play in Jesus' ministry. Fourth, everyone ate until they were full. Even the boy who was first presented his meal got his share. It's not ate enough to make it through to the evening, but until they were satisfied. What an extravagant Savior. To give abundantly. And last, in the extravagance, the disciples collected the leftovers. And they each had exactly 12 baskets full each. How amazing is that? The 12 went from, we can't feed everyone, we don't have the money to do this, to each holding a basket full of food that could probably feed a couple of families. No wonder the people called him a prophet. No wonder they wanted to make him king. Not only does this man heal us of our infirmities, but he also freely feeds us. With such a king, we will never go hungry again. This is a prophet of God that can solve all of our problems. How spectacular is King Jesus? What a great reaction. And now that we have this amazing story before us, what should be our takeaway from it? Was this a one-off and... Our only reaction should just be one of amazement? Well, as I've been pondering, I have three personal applications that come to mind here. First, there is this significant emphasis within all four gospel accounts. Jesus orders the 12 to do the impossible. He tells his disciples to do something monumental. Feed the 5,000 plus. The task seems overwhelming in the moment, and it should be, if they tried to do it in their own power. But when God calls you to a task, he always provides the resources to fulfill the task. He always accomplishes his purposes. He cannot be thwarted, even though in our eyes, it seems like there is no way this is going to happen. Now, according to the Joshua Project, there are 3.28 billion unreached people in the world. 
And when I say unreached, I mean they have zero access to the gospel. None. That's nearly 42% of the world's population that has never, ever heard of Jesus and his glorious gospel to save. And yet, Jesus says at the end of Matthew, go into all the world and make disciples. Me, trying to reach 3.28 billion seems staggering. But that's because I'm only thinking in terms of my own limited human resources. I'm thinking, Jesus, we don't have the money. Jesus, we don't have the manpower to reach the community, much less the unreached. And Jesus, there are all these COVID restrictions right now. It can't be done. But if God wants to make disciples using me, he will make disciples. He not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills as well. Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have proposed and I will do it. Or let's bring this home a little. Perhaps you have that friend or relative that you're convinced they are not going to change. They're going to be the same no matter what. They, they will never accept the gospel. I will never be able to save them. And that is true. You can't save anyone. But Jesus can. He can save to the uttermost, the most foulest wretch. I know this to be true because I was the most foulest wretch of a man. And when God calls you to do something, trust that he will provide the means. If he's telling you something like give to missions and you are saying in your heart, but Lord, I need that money, then trust that he's going to provide what you need if you give your money away. If he tells you, share the gospel with the lady in the waiting room, don't respond with, well, I don't know what to say. Trust that God will give you the words in that moment. If God calls you to a task, he doesn't expect you to do it on your terms. He will always provide what you need. That way, he gets the glory for what only he can do. Second, Notice the extravagant nature of the provision. I do believe the people's response was appropriate, even though they didn't understand the full implications of it. Jesus is exactly the kind of king you want. He is the type of king that will provide for your every need. Yes, he calls you into sacrificial service to him within this world, but he greatly rewards his people in the next. This is not the only banquet that Jesus serves. It's not. We read of a future feast in Revelation 19. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The prophet Isaiah that we just read earlier in the service, he describes that future feast as well. In verse 6, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus is extravagant in his blessing, providing for every need. If your situation right now feels dire... Know that he has something spectacular waiting for you, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, that you can comprehend just how magnificent it is. He's that extravagant. He's been like that to me just already in just some of the small things. I was talking to a dear sister in Christ in Sunday school, and she was sharing me, man, God has been so good to me, the way that he has provided for me, even in the bleakest of circumstances. And lastly, we should ponder the divine nature of our Lord, what Jesus is like. This is our Savior. Consider his gentleness here. It's his inclination to alleviate your suffering. That's why he came into the world to save the most wretched of sinners. If you will but come to him, you will find grace and mercy waiting for you. He wants to save you from future judgment. Consider his power. He fed 5,000 people with the most meager of means. If Jesus can do that alone, then he has proved that he is a magnificent, worthy sacrifice before the Father. His body is that powerful. He can save to the uttermost as he stands in your place to receive the wrath that is due to you. His sacrifice is enough to accomplish salvation. Consider his example. Jesus legitimizes mercy ministry. He wants to feed the poor and the needy. He was hospitable to every stranger there that day. He cared about the physical needs of each individual there. And then consider his mandate. He told his disciples, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus wants to get us involved in his ministry. He includes us. We're not just chess pieces on a game board. He deigns that we are important, and he uses us as his divine instruments in his hands to give our lives meaning. Psalm 138, 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, I can't speak for the rest of you, but I want to be left holding the basket. I want to be left holding the basket. I want to be like one of the 12 standing there once it's all over, holding the basket of extra fish and bread with my jaw just hanging wide open. What they must have been thinking in that moment. He really did it. (laughs) He didn't just provide, but he provided abundantly. Now, if I were a betting man, and I'm not a betting man, I'll bet they were giddy in that moment as they showed each other their baskets. I got one too. It's amazing. I'll bet they were thinking, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I'll wager that they thought every promise he gives is true. I want to be left holding a basket when all the work is done, looking into it, at what is before me, what he has placed into my hands, all that extravagant grace that I am holding, all that he has poured out on me, and be able to marvel at his goodness. Oh, church, please know this. It's not just that we barely make it across the finish line. In Christ, who gives us every spiritual blessing, we cross it triumphantly. I want to be left holding the basket, saying, look at all he's done. Look at what he's done. I want to be in awe of that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, awaken us. Sometimes we feel so burdened by what we carry in this world, we forget the magnificent Savior that we serve, that the magnificent plan that you have put into place where you have declared the end from the beginning. And that, Lord, we are headed to the most magnificent feast ever. That it will provide more than we even ask for. That we will just receive a heaping helpful spoonful of grace upon grace upon grace at that meal. And that, Lord, we would once again be renewed and that we would look up and just say, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a great God. And then when we look back on the past, not only will we see all the different ways that you worked and that you moved to bless us and to keep us and to keep us close to you, but, Lord, we will also see the wretched nature of our sin and what Christ paid for us to be reconciled to you. We pray, Lord, that that when we look at such things that we will not despair, but that, Lord, our hearts would just grow in adoration and love and affection for you to know what a great Savior, what a great God to move towards us who could not help ourselves. And all we have to do is place our faith on what Christ has already done, that we would cry, hallelujah, hosanna, what a great God. Lord, awaken us this day to have such magnificent thoughts of you and that our lives and our actions will prove it. We pray this because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen.